Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. The reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But in each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become even in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning from me as well. If we haven't met yet, my name is John Adams. I'm the minister here at Emmanuel Church, South Croydon. When I grow up, I will be tall enough to reach the branches that I need to reach to climb the trees you get to climb when you're grown up. When I grow up, I will be strong enough to carry all the heavy things you have to haul around with you when you're a grown up. And when I grow up, I will be brave enough to fight the creatures that you have to fight beneath the bed each night to be a grown-up. And when I grow up, I will eat sweets every day on the way to work, and I will go to bed late every night, and I will wake up when the sun comes up, and I will watch cartoons until my eyes go square, and I won't care, because I'll be all grown-up. Thanks to Marina, our eldest. I'm a big fan of Matilda, the musical one of the songs of which I've just shared with you, and it captures brilliantly in one go all the optimism and the complexity of growing up. Matilda, 
so looks forward to growing up. A brighter, wider world of opportunity opens up on the other side of maturity. Trouble is, of course, that part of not yet being grown up is that you don't fully understand what the world is actually going to look like to you once you are. You don't know what will actually turn out to matter once you get there. You dream of escaping the iron rod of your mother's dietary prescriptions and eating sweets all day long. Only to find that when you get there, cabbage, kale and broccoli are actually your greatest friends. But what about spiritual lives? I wonder whether spiritual growth is an aim of yours. And if it is, I wonder what in your mind spiritual growth looks like. I've been asking that myself this week. Is the spiritual maturity that I look for like the ambitions in Matilda's song? Is it the spiritual equivalent of sweets for every meal? You know, something which the Lord chuckles at kindly at the moment whilst having rather different ambitions for my life, which I will only understand if or when I actually get there. And here's a question. What would it look like for our church to be a spiritually mature church? Well, fortunately, these are questions that the Lord has not left us merely guessing about. And they're right in focus as we come this week to the beginning of the fourth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the believers in Ephesus. And he begins by encouraging us to live out, to grow up into the people God has already called us to be. Do grab a Bible if you've got one near you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And as Paul goes on, he makes the growth theme absolutely explicit. Verse 13. We are to become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, God's purpose for us is to no longer be infants. Verse 15, he says we are to grow, to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So clearly, God wants us to grow. You don't just become a Christian and then wait for the end. You know, believing in Christ is more than standing at the bus stop for the eternity express, as it were. Maturity is our goal. Maturity is the goal actually for all of us. But again, what does this maturity look like? Well, that too, Paul speaks to it. And I'd like to unpack that for a few moments with you. I think what Paul says in this chapter is that maturity looks like one and many. It looks like unity and diversity. And as I unpack that, I'm praying that we're going to gain together a renewed vision for our oneness, for our unity as a church here at Emmanuel South Croydon, and also a deeper sense of this vital every member ministry manyness, if I can put it that way, and that we'll be convinced that both of these things are vital for our growth into the people of God that he wants us to be. So one, first of all, a mature church is unified. And Paul, I think, here explores that unity in at least three ways. We're to be one in God, one in the truth, and one in love. And, And they're kind of really overlapping ideas, but I'm going to take them one at a time thematically. So first of all, we are to be one in God. Our our unity is to be grounded in God, the Trinity. Verse 2. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. wonder if in the recent cold snap uh, you found yourself suddenly on some perilously slippery sheet ice. Uh, last Monday, I, I walked three kids to school and we had a 66% wipeout rate. The issue with sheet ice, of course, is that if one foot does start going, uh, you've got nothing for the other foot that would normally be used to steady you to get purchase on, and so over we go. And similarly, in order to be unified in a meaningful way, we need to have some grip on some kind of firm reference point, something fixed to be unified around. And that reference point for us is God. We have the unity of the Spirit, as Paul puts it. We have one hope. We're all heading in the same direction. We have one Lord. That refers to Jesus Christ, our common master. We have one faith. Well, we're not just people of faith. We believe in the same Lord Jesus, the same unique person, and so forth. Our unity is grounded in God, and specifically, God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is so wonderfully brought together here. Now, in a sense, that may seem a very obvious thing to say, but I think it does bear exploring for a moment. First of all, it's worth dwelling on because it it highlights what a tragedy it is when churches are divided. The same God is Father of all. There is only one Christ to have faith in. If anyone has the Spirit of God, the Spirit that they have is exactly the same Spirit that inhabits every single one of their brothers and sisters. And so it's a great sadness when appearances suggest something else. Of course, and this may be less obvious, it's also possible for churches to be united, only not united around Christ. So we could be united in the same way that a social club is united. Our unity could simply come because we share the same background or we share the same sense of humor or we go to the same supermarket or just because we know each other. But a mature church, one that has really grown up, rejoices in a unity that just isn't bothered either way by those things. They rejoice in a unity grounded in the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For them, the Lord is so big. He's big enough in their lives, and they know him so profoundly in all that he has done that all the rest fades out of sight, united in God. Now, of course, to be united in God, that does require a common understanding in truth in God. And therefore, it requires a shared perspective around who he is, what is true about him. So second, a mature church is one in the truth. Let's move on to verses 11 to 13. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, those are mainly kind of truth-declaring, truth-teaching roles. He gave them, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God 
and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So do you see the picture here? Christ supplies the church with apostles, that's the 12, and including Paul, and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And as the church grows from them in the understanding of the truth, she matures. And that keeps us firmly rooted. It helps us avoid just going all over the place. We don't become like verse 14, infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Now, I guess in our day, we are less likely to suffer from some single crafty schema, as Paul would have it, deliberately trying to deceive us. But we do live in an age of information overload. Uh, Apparently, the average person consumes 34 gigabytes of information every day, including over 100,000 words. What a thought. And that's potentially quite bewildering. And that information, of course, can be quite contradictory as concerns what's important, what's good, what's true. And so if we're spiritually immature, if we don't have a grasp of the truth in Christ, we're going to struggle to spot which things, which bits of this information that's coming at us is actually harmful or or misguided for our souls. We'll be all at sea. And it's hard to be united, of course, in that situation. But God intends for us to be one in the truth. One in the truth. Now, I say that fully aware that I think, particularly in today's culture, that raises some really important questions. Number one, we may ask, well, in this postmodern age of ours, if we're to be one in truth, I mean, is there even such a thing as truth? The truth. I think talk of the truth, particularly in regard to religious belief today, can, can sound uh, awfully imperialist. And the younger you are, the more you're going to feel that. Well, it's certainly countercultural, And there are some good things to learn from postmodernism. None of us are going to be completely objective in the search for what is true. And so we need to attend to our biases. That's very important. And saying that there is a truth doesn't necessarily mean that that truth is exactly what we think it is. But the premise of postmodernism, the culture in which we live in today, that there is no such thing as absolute truth is fundamentally bankrupt. Because when you say there is no such thing as absolute truth, you are, of course, uttering an absolute truth. At which point, it turns out that there is such a thing as absolute truth. So it's a philosophy that crumbles in your hands, even as you try to grasp it. And of course, the reality is, in the real world that we all live in, most people do work on the basis, quite visibly, of certain things being absolutely true. I was struck to see the other other day, Kamala Harris's autobiography is entitled, The Truths We Hold. She's talking about core values that we unite around. Now, we may differ about them, but we all know that we need them. And of course, in a world so desperate for that, for that truth, knowledge of our maker, who alone can really give it, is exactly what we need. So that was the first question. Is there such a thing as truth? A second objection that we might raise, well, it's all very well saying that we must be one in the truth, but... That's awfully hard to get at, isn't it? I mean, what if we as Christians disagree about it? I think that's where the authority of the Bible is so important. We really need an authority. We need a reference point 
for what is true. Otherwise, of course, it is just one person's idea about God versus another. And I want you to test what I'm saying. If it's right, does it accord with the truth that's in the scriptures? Otherwise, we will be all at sea. But someone will say quite rightly, but we're not all entirely agreed about what's in the Bible. I mean, sometimes we differ about points of interpretation, don't we? And certainly we do. So we need to read it with humility. We need to read it with others. We need to recognize there's hard work to be done in the pursuit of the truth about God. But I want to say this. Jesus' ministry was clearly founded on the principle that there is such a thing as the truth about God, that it does exist, and that the scriptures can give us a handle on it. So let's not lose heart in looking and searching for it. But finally, there may be one third objection. Doesn't too much truth-seeking divide rather than unite? Shouldn't we rather to preserve the truth, to to preserve our unity rather, sorry, talk less about truth and, and just try to be kind to one another? Well, of course, a certain type of truth finding can divide us. We can end up about obsessing about things that uh, are not important. We can end up straining in gnats whilst swallowing camels, as Jesus put it. And we've got to take care of that. But I think the key point is that a mature Christian is never about truth for its own sake. He's never about a cold or technical accuracy. Christian maturity means speaking the truth in love. And that brings us to our final aspect of unity. We are to be one in God, one in truth, and one in love. Listen to Paul's beautiful vision of a grown-up church. He says, verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. True is what we need, but love with it. And love, of course, is the great unity builder. Good thing to be thinking of on this Valentine's Day. Let's back up to verse 2 for a moment, which are great verses uh, for, for a marriage or any relationship of love as well as the church. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. See that there, love is humble and gentle. And so it saves us from the kind of division that comes about through harshness. Love, it says, is patient. It saves us from the kind of division that comes from one person saying, you're not moving fast enough. I'm off on my own. Love means bearing with one another. That kind of love saves us from holding on to a mental list of each other's failings and the bitterness that that produces. And Paul says, love makes every effort. Love doesn't roll over at the hint of difficulty. We are to be one in love. And that's the unity bit. But maturity also requires truly embracing our diversity. And this a little bit more briefly as we close. Let's go up to verse 7. And just as we do that, I want to ask you a question. 
who would you say is the minister of this church? Who would you say is the minister of this church? We're going to come back to that. Remember, before verse 7, Paul was hammering this one body, one spirit, one Lord stuff. And then he says, verse 7, but to each one of us, grace, and he could mean a gift here, has been given as Christ apportioned it. So he's gone from oneness to difference. And then he lists out a couple of those different gifts. Verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But the point here is not to make a particular fuss about those four rather to underline that they equip everyone else to do exactly what they particularly are called to do. So verse 12, to equip his people for works of service, or works of ministry it could say, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. So back to the question, who is the minister of this church? If we put a sign out there saying minister, colon, whose names or names should we put after it? Well, the answer is definitely not me. My role and that of the others in the team with pastoral and teaching responsibilities is to equip the ministers. The ministers, the people whose names go on that board, are you. Every member of the church. And the measure of the maturity of our church is not the enthusiasm of the leaders, but it is whether we are all serving in the gifts that God has given us. Now that is actually quite radical, isn't it? I mean, it's just not the way that most people think about church. I think the church, most people think, they probably think of the building, first of all, or at least what happens in the building and the people who serve there or who minister there, and they usually think they're the vicar or possibly the staff, if they have them. And by the way, that particular analysis of church would leave us in a particularly bad state right now because no, no, there's no one here. But it's not like that. The ministry of the church has not stopped during the pandemic because the ministry of the church is in the lives of its ministers and they are not here, they're out there. It's you in your workplace. It's you in your witness in your family. It's you in your friendships. You are ministering in the quiet service of your neighbor. It's you in your particular gifts. I mean, sure, there's some ministry that happens here too, but the true measure of the maturity of a church is not the visible upfront ministry. It is the great web, the great network unseen of service and love that happens all the way through the week, all the way through our community as each person grows in their faith and gifting. And that ministry truly stretches out into the world. And that's the picture that I want to leave us with as we come to the end of this series in another chunk of Ephesians. And we conclude it with this wonderful verse that we've made our verse of the year. I'm going to read that verse, verse 16. And in a moment, we're going to show you a wonderful little picture of our backdrop, which Bev Christie has so beautifully put up for us, which captures wonderfully the unity and diversity of a church. Here it is. Verse 16, from him, that's Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work.
Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.